Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today we interview Kimberly Seals Ehlers, the founder of Earth, that's spelled birth without the B, Earth, I-R-T-H. Kimberly is an award-winning journalist, author of five books, international speaker, strategist, and advocate for maternal and infant health. She's a former senior editor at Essence and a writer at Fortune magazine. Kimberly is a leading commentator on birth, breastfeeding, and motherhood, and the intersection of race, policy, and culture. For the past seven years, she has run on-the-ground community-partnered projects in places like Alabama, Louisiana, and Pennsylvania to better understand the lived experiences of birth and breastfeeding in low-income communities of color. Her app, Earth, is like a Yelp-like review and rating app for hospitals and physicians made by and for Black women and birthing people of color. You can learn more about the platform at birthwithoutbias.com. Now, listeners, I want you to know that this can be a heavy episode. We always like to keep the interview somewhat lighthearted, but we needed to speak the truth about Black women's health in America, and that simply wasn't something to make light of. We are publishing this episode while the U.S. election results are still being determined. If today is not a great day, to have a little bit more anxiety on your plate than we understand coming back to this episode. But change won't happen, and women will continue to die, especially black and brown women, if we do not lean into the harsh realities, their realities. Take care of yourself, Femme fans, and let Femtech Focus know how we can support you. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Kimberly. Welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me. I am very, very honored to have you looking at your background, what you're working on. So important. I mean, I think everyone who comes on our show is doing important work, but there's a few gems that I'm like, no, for real. Please give, <laughs> let me give you a platform to talk on. This is important stuff, you know? Yes. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And, you know, I mean, there's so many people doing great work and we always, you know, think of ourselves as part of an amazing, powerful ecosystem of folks really trying to address some of the issues going on in maternal health and black maternal health. Yeah. Cause it's not just going to be only one of us that can make the change, right? It's exactly, you know, systemic problems need systemic solutions, right? We all got to be in on it from every angle. It's, it's, complex and it's going to take many, many different tools from many approaches, multiple disciplines. So yeah, that's the only way that we can actually start to make a difference. So I'm excited about that. I love it because we have, um, we do have a lot of uh, medical students that listen and scientists that are in their PhDs or undergrad, but we also have like law students and public health students and even journalist students. And I'm like, all of you, you all, we all need to work together. All the disciplines. Absolutely. Like, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes, and yes. <laughs> oh, awesome. Well, Kimberly, you know, our listeners love to get to know our guests a little bit more personally. So why don't you start with telling us about you? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Uh, what did you work on before this? And then, and then how did you end up here? Yeah, that's such a great question. I am a native New Yorker, born and raised in Queens. So all the Queens people out nice. there, hello. Um, I am a real New Yorker because I went to NYU for undergrad and then Columbia for graduate school. So I let people know that I I rep my city and state pretty hard. But I am a a journalist by trade, Um, have studied journalism, had an amazing career in journalism. I was a writer at Fortune magazine, uh, worked at the New York Post covering business. I was a business journalist. 
Rupert Murdoch sent me to London. I worked for the Times out there and, you know, had a terrific career. I was a senior editor at Essence, had a wonderful career in journalism. And then like so many other women, I became a mother and everything shifted for me, mm. right? And so I became really passionate and very interested um, in what was going on with uh, women in pregnancy, in particular black and brown women in pregnancy, just in terms of the disparities. And mm -hmm. when I was pregnant and, you know, learning these things, it scared the, the bejesus out of me. Mm -hmm. I was terrified. I was blessed to have not been poor. I was blessed to be educated. And I did not know that those things did not matter. And that even with, you know, two college degrees and, you know, a good income that I was still at a risk of, preterm birth, a low birth weight baby, dying during childbirth. And it just yeah. really stunned me. Simply because um, of so your I, race. It's simply because of being wow. a black woman, right? Yeah. And as studies have shown that income and education are protective factors for white women and their birth outcomes, but not for black Whoa. women. So, you know, we, we can be degreed, but still be as much greater risk, I think it says, as a white woman without a high school diploma. <gasps> and so, you, you know, learning about all this really frightened me. And this was, you know, almost uh, 18, 19 years ago, um, but I was really concerned. And so as a journalist, I felt like this was a question that didn't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. um, and so I began asking questions uh, for me that led to my very first book, which was a pregnancy guidebook for black and brown women um, that came out back in 2006, published by HarperCollins. And that really just kind of led me on this journey of one, talking about motherhood, but also talking about the ways that motherhood is different. But I'm going to pause because I can't even think. <laughs> We're talking about motherhood and uh, we can hear the kids outside. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's like it's they've like... been quiet all day, but they just come out and they're having a good time. God bless them, but I'm going to close the windows, yeah. which means I might be a little sweaty, but... <laughs> Yeah, our, listener, our listeners know I have my fur babies on this end, so human babies on that end, no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. But hopefully that'll help us a little bit. Sorry about that. No worries, no All worries. Right, so I'll pick right back up. Um, so, so, yeah, so that book really began my journey in talking about motherhood overall, but also about the ways that motherhood and the motherhood journey is different for black and brown women. Um, and so, you know, I began writing a lot about it. Um, that got the attention of some foundations who began to, you know, really fund me to begin to test some of the ideas that I was saying, the things that I was learning um, from talking to women as a result of book tours and things like that. Um, so it just really kept growing. And from birth, I started talking about breastfeeding. Um, and now I've written five books and I lead multiple, I have led multiple projects all over the country, wow. really taking a, an approach for me of a journalist, which is yeah. how do we ask questions? from the people who are being most impacted by this problem, right? Um, and I think, and this goes back to what you mentioned, that many times we think the answers are with experts, mm -hmm. right? Those scientists, the public health experts, and that is all very important. But also, how do we now look at the community as an expert in their own lives, right? How yes. do we go to them, not to fix them, um, but to say, hey, maybe you guys have ideas. And so that's really the work that I've led, which was kind of the beginnings um, and seed, seed work that led me to the Earth app that I'm doing now. So all of it's been a, a building process. Yes, that is so important because there are unfortunately innovators, entrepreneurs that say, we're going to fix a poverty issue. And they come up with some innovation and they go into impoverished communities and they say, hey, here's this app. You know, and the community says, this isn't compatible with the phone I have. This isn't useful for me. What it requires from me is not what I, you know, like, and so exactly. I, we're always exactly. telling innovators, like, don't just think that, you know, the solution to different people in different groups and different communities issues, you know, the solutions really should come in partnership with them. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's been core to how we've been building the app. Um, I actually raised over 500000 in grants, and really that funding was for us to do this deep dive into five cities and that we can yeah. li literally be on the ground asking questions, learning about what people actually needed, capturing their experiences that we could use to put into the app, but always this idea that we would center the community in the process and that we were going to co-create it yeah. um, with them um, and that we could actually create a new model for design because to 
your point, the you know that that is the typical route, and maybe you you've been asked to do a couple of hours of discovery, you know, um, but to actually be rooted in community, yes. to have them involved with every step, um, even from ideation, right? You know, like don't come up with an idea that hasn't included them. Ask them first, and yeah. so we've really been. Um, true to that model in, in building this. And so that makes me really proud. Yeah. Well, um, question for you and, you know, my listeners know I'm really authentic. I'm off the cuff, you know, and so please, uh, correct me if I'm insensitive or something. I'm tr- truly curious. Do you think that it requires a person of color to go into a community of color to give them a solution or is that, are those communities resistant to white people coming in and saying like, we want to help fix you. (laughs) Like talk to us. Do you think it requires that? Well, certainly saying, you know, we, we are, we we want to come fix you is not a good idea. Obviously. (laughs) This is my paradigm of how some founders are. Yes. (laughs) but uh, Right. But certainly we know that people of color are more effective in their own communities, you know? Um, And so it is really important. And there are some great, folks who have done their work. I mean, if you've done your anti-racist work, if you really mm-hmm. took taken the time to unpack your privilege and understand mm. the ways those things show up, you can be effective. But I think that more importantly, it's saying, who are your partners? What does your mm-hmm. team look like? You know, mm-hmm. um, because really by showing who you are by your actions is greater than one individual person, right? So Absolutely. if you're there as one white person, but everybody else on your team is represents that community, that's one thing. Yeah. Um, and also, are they in leadership positions? Like, right? how have you really tried to center the community, both one in terms of seeding power, um, but also in terms of, you know, kind of building a team that you feel represents your core values? Because if your team only looks like you, then your values are speaking louder than your yes, supposed mission. That's and right. that's going to be ineffective. Yes. Definitely yeah. ineffective. Um, do you think this is a, a problem in the U.S.? Is that what we're talking about here? Or is this a, a, a black women's health issue around the world? Well, we definitely know that it's happening beyond the U.S. I mean, right now, the latest data from the U.K. was showing that what they call BAME, which is Black and minority ethnic women, are also having poorer birth outcomes, wow. also having higher maternal mortality rates. And even what they're seeing uh, during COVID outcomes is reflecting mm-hmm. the things happening here. And so when we look and see that this is happening to Black women outside of the U.S., we know that it's a question of racism, mm-hmm. right? It's not about anything unique it you know i mean even within better health systems it's like when you remove all the other factors you could say people in u.s don't have prenatal care even though every every study has proven that even with prenatal care black women still have these poor outcomes but what about in the uk where they have free health insurance right and so the more that you look at what's happening the only you know the only similarity is is race and so we really have to get to this root issue of racism in maternity care and infant care um so that we can start to really get to the root of the matter um because if not we are just going to be kind of circling the wagon so to speak yeah so if it's not the healthcare system if it's not you know necessarily have to do with education or economic status what is it about racism that is in you know, negatively affecting maternal health and infant health? Well, you know, it's like everybody, it's like swimming in a pool, right? You know, and we've all swam in this pool of America, which is laden with stereotypes, Mm -hmm. right? And, and, And assumptions and fears and the reason why Black men who pull out a wallet are shot, right? It's because of this this idea that society has told us certain people are threatening, certain people are less deserving. The reason why someone will put someone's knee in someone's neck Mm -hmm. for for eight minutes and, you know, and kill them is because that person was less than a human. Mm. And so these are the things that our society, you know, teaches us, teaches us and they are playing out. And the, the, the body of evidence showing the way that bias shows up. One study was showing that, um, uh, physicians were giving different treatment, white physicians were giving different treatment options for hypothetical black patients than they were for hypothetical black white patients, right? And so mm-hmm. now you have this two people presenting with the same issue, but you're giving different treatment options, often better treatment options for the white patient. And so this idea mm-hmm. of who is deserving of the best, this idea of who will comply, you know, there are so many assumptions that are based in, in, in care. Um, there was a study uh, 
this was in August um, around black infants doing better with black doctors and dying at twice the rates when they have white wow. doctors. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And so study after study is showing that there is something about dark skin, black skin, that makes people switch something that says this person is not worthy. I don't have to give it much. Maybe they feel I don't, maybe someone won't care if something bad happens. Who's here to advocate for this person? A host of assumptions that lead to poor care and disproportionately to death yes. for black and brown women. This is unacceptable. Unacceptable. I, um, it was a few months ago, I saw a story going around on Facebook and I was like, this is bogus. There's no way this is true. Like, I need to fact check this myself. And it was about the, um, essentially the, the beginning of gynecology and like the father of gynecology mm -hmm. and how the first surgeries were, you know, done Dr. on Marion Sims. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Done on black women without anesthesia. And I was like, like, this is crazy. This is great. And I looked it up and I was like, holy crap. Oh my God. This is yes. like the basis of, you know, women's health is ba is on the back of black women. And then, you know, as a scientist myself, I've used HeLa cells. So Henrietta is uh, the mm -hmm. woman who had cervical cancer and, and the doctors mm -hmm. didn't consent with her and her family has not profited from her cells literally being the reason we've discovered so many things the last 50 years or so, um, her cells have even gone to the moon, like they've gone into space. Right. But it was like, Oh, there's this black woman with these cells that we can culture and use in science. And like, we're not even going to ask her about it. And like, we're going to win Nobel prizes while her family is like poor, you know? Right, um, right. And so you can see like the racism and the idea that black women's bodies are there for other people, right? Yeah. Just to use oh, as God. you would like to, yeah. not to be cared for, not to be considered mm. as a human, but just, just objects to be used for whatever purpose someone else deems to be more important. Mm. And so this is why we talk about the dehumanization mm -hmm. of black women, which obviously started in slavery, but continues today, right? Breonna Taylor's killer is yes. still not arrested, right? And so yes. when we think about the ways that black women's lives are devalued, um, and we look at a place here in New York City, the black maternal mortality rate is 12 times out of white women. In New York mm. City, you know, in my mind, one of the greatest cities in the world, yeah. but black women die during and after childbirth in New York City at 12 times the rate of white women. And so when we look at those types of uh, you know, statistics that are so stark and so severe, yeah. you have to begin to look at something else. And then, you know, we have the story of what happened to Serena Williams. I mean, mm. clearly one mm -hmm. of the greatest athletes of all time, uh, a, a multimillionaire, a celebrity, a, a goat, you know, in, in her field. Yeah. And she was completely dismissed and ignored in everything she said. And I remind people, she was there with her white millionaire husband, right? She, you know, she's not even, you yeah. know, and, and still, and still received such poor treatment and nearly died. And so when we think about the scope of this, we really have to fix our minds to one, as you said, acknowledge the, the history mm -hmm. that is embedded in black women's mm -hmm. bodies and how they are viewed, particularly by the medical system. Yes. The present which has no regard for celebrity status, income, or anything like that, mm -hmm. that it really is about, there's something about the black skin that turns people into another mode of operating, and it needs to stop. It absolutely needs to stop. I am, you know, whatever Femtech Focus can do to continue the, this talk, you know, and, and, you know, for me, I get really annoyed when we just keep talking about it. And so if there is something for, for Femtech Focus and our listeners to do, please be sure to share it with us because we will share it with our followers and tell them do this because <laughs> just, right, right, just right. talking about it is, you know, uh, is no. enough. Right. And, and, you know, and, and really that is the inspiration behind the earth app. Right? Tell us and about so the app. I, I'm very excited yeah. about it. So what's the, what is this earth app? So earth is like the word birth, but we drop the B for bias. So it's I R T H. Um, and it really is a app designed to detect and address trends of racism and bias in care. So it's a Yelp like platform that you can leave a review, um, or find a review from someone like you. Right. And so it's created for black and brown women and birthing people by black women so that other people can know where they're receiving good care. And also we can begin to create public accountability with physicians and hospitals. So they know what we are going to let our community know where we're not receiving good treatment and that we can use our consumer power 
to amplify those who do receive consistent good reviews, but also to warn of those places where we are not seeing good reviews. And so on the front end, we have this amazing consumer tool um, that allows people to use their consumer power to push for change. And then on the back end, we're turning these qualitative experiences into quantitative data yes. so that now we can go to hospital. Because you know what happens, Brittany? Each of these stories gets dismissed. I've mm. worked all over the country, and even Serena Williams' story gets dismissed, right? But what if, and this is my journalist head, what if we put all those stories in one place, right? And so now we have 5,000 women. In, in New York City from one hospital, let's say, and we can go to that hospital and say, hey, funny thing, we have 3,000 people and 80% of the black women say this and 20% of Latina women, all the same-sex couples. And now we can aggregate that so we can turn it into data for change. And this yes. is what I'm really excited about, our ability to begin to hold hospitals accountable, to make sure that people understand that these are not one-off experiences and that collectively we can show the data to the hospitals, but also at Earth, we say we are our sister's keeper, right? Mm. And we are going to let each other know where we are receiving good care and where we're not. And so this whole idea is critically important because as you know, there's been little public accountability. Right yeah. now, hospitals primarily do an anti-bias training and I'm using air quotes for those listening. Mm -hmm. um, and then they get to tick the box, yeah. right? Nobody yeah. has really checked back in to see if that anti-bias training has impacted the experience of care by black and brown patients. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a to-do thing and that's it. So we're really trying to, you know, uh, um, be a meaningful disruption uh, in that space. It's an industry that's been very slow to self-regulate. The numbers about Black maternal mortality have been there for some time. And so we think that this can be an important an important lever to, to push for change on the consumer side. Absolutely. I actually just gave a um, presentation the other week on the femtech landscape, and I, I gave an overview of what's already saturated, people have worked on, we probably don't need any more innovation and what needs to be worked on. But I, for what has already been worked on and is saturated, I put an asterisk next to all of it because I said fertility, maternal health, breastfeeding, mostly solved for white women. <laughs> the asterisk was <laughs> exactly. like, if we actually look at like how many of these products, because there's so many at home fertility tests and the maternal health, like at home trackers and at home ultrasound, we all the cool tech and shit. It was like, this is for affluent white women, <laughs> you know, like, right. oh my and God. it's been very device oriented, right? Yeah. A device, like you're saying, you can hear the, the kicks yeah. and the tracks yeah. and how you labor. But what about the experience of care? Yes, like, no really yes. Delivery of care. That. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's really important because I always say to people, like, you know, I, um, I, I had a C-section that I still can't explain. And that was that, you know, really troubled me, you know, and it's not necessarily what happens, but how it happens. Mm. And so while they are maybe noting numbers of C-sections or, or, you know, infections, or but how that happened can leave a lasting imprint on somebody. And so we really want to get more into not just counting numbers, yeah. but also understanding that experience of care because that leads to so much trauma for people mm -hmm. um and also for those who do survive right and then we hope that it can be preventative yeah. right now even in the maternal mortality space there are a lot of maternal mortality review boards so when someone dies they go in and review very important but we can't solve this problem from the grave as i yeah. said you know we need we need a front-end tool and yes but trying to fix something after people are dead is not a real fix for me. And so we're here for front-end decision-making. Yeah. We're here to alert hospitals before they get to that mortality, before they get to a, a death, that they can know what the experiences of care are like yeah. at their facility. And I love that you're focusing on quantitating that, right? Bef pr mm -hmm. Prior to someone passing away, right? You're quantitating it. You're making graphs. You're going to show statistical significance. And, you know, mm -hmm. at, when I when I mentor founders about their pitch decks and when they have their market slide, you know, and they say people are going to love it. I say, you can't just say that. You got to go out and survey them and make a graph that says it, you know, that they, they said they loved it, you know. And I know it's like you you already know they're going to love it, but you got to make a graph. Uh, and so I love that, like, this is what you're doing. You're like making these graphs because just these like Facebook hashtags or whatever is like it's not enough. You need the graph. Right. 
Right. You, you, you need the data. Another thing that's yeah. so interesting is right now when we talk about bias, we're kind of having a abstract intellectual conversation, right? Even if you go to one of these anti-bias trainings, it's going to talk to you about your childhood, you know, show you some pictures and find out your associations. But really what we're doing with the Earth app is when you go through the process, and even though I say it's Yelp-like, it's not a free-form commenting, mm. you have to say specifically what happened to you that you feel was an experience of bias. So was it, you know, your pain levels were dismissed? Was it a diagnostic test that was requested that didn't come in a timely fashion? Was it a rude comment? And we literally have about 25, 27 of these that we keep adding as wow. women report experiences. And so what we really want to do is to also decode bias. Right. And so we're not having this abstract conversation, but meanwhile, recognizing that they call it unconscious bias for a reason. People aren't aware. And that 90 minute training doesn't necessarily bring awareness to something that's on a subconscious level. Mm -hmm. So we also want to be able to go to that hospital and say, listen, this is what it is of these thousand. You know, this many said it was lack of eye contact. This many said about pain levels. So we can really begin to work on the specifics. And then ultimately, in our social enterprise model, we can use that to inform consulting work and trainings, um, both on the hospital side and on the provider side, that are more rooted in the lived experience and not just talking about bias as an abstract notion that can be resolved in 90 minutes, you know? Do you think that that's really the goal? That list also empowers the women to know when they're being, you know, discriminated against? Because I know for myself as a woman... I probably was mansplained for many years and then I had a term mansplaining and I was like, Oh, I I see it. I'm experiencing it in this moment, you know? Um, So do you think women are actually like, Holy crap, actually this, this is bias. Well, that's what I experienced, you know? Exactly. Exactly. Mm. And, and, and I think that is important. And, and, and the sad part is, and we've already seen this in some of our reviews that we've already collected because we've been collecting um, reviews for the past nine months and we're kind of uh, uh, fully gestated, huh? Have- Right, right, right. So, uh, because we wanted to, again, we're co-creators of the community, so we needed to get some experiencing in, test our questions, et cetera, et cetera. But one of the things that we were recognizing, to your point, is that even sometimes it seemed like the bar was so low, Brittany, for what is a good experience. Like, Mm. for many Black women, that they survived. Wow. And their baby survived. Wow, yeah was like a great experience. So and so people would literally write, I was yelled at by a nurse, you know, or something else, but still give it a four. And we were like, no, we we need to be clear about yeah. what a four is, right? If you were yelled at, that place does not deserve a four. Yeah. Um, and so again, putting up those experiences, really helping to re-educate people about what a good experience should be. People yes. are just happy to survive. Yeah. And that is not okay. Also, it may be part of the, the system's goal mm-hmm. is to make us that way, but that is not what we deserve. Yeah. And so we really want to lift up what should be the experience and that we can use our consumer power to push for that to happen. Yeah. You know, um, the way I can relate to that is I grew up in, a, in an abusive household. And so like when mm, I so started sorry. to, you know, I think many people do. I'm just authentic, you know, about it. And I'm going to use it for good now, right, as a survivor. Mm-hmm. But something I had to learn was like, just because he's not violent doesn't mean he's good for me. You know, like you got to exactly. raise that bar, raise the bar, you, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's you like, raise that bar. so, um, one of the things that I, I've heard you talk about and it's on your site and stuff is this intersection of motherhood and breastfeeding with race and policy. Can you, can you break that down for us? What is that about? Well, I think that, you know, you know, no, nothing happens in a vacuum and the motherhood experience, particularly in the U S is you know, primarily shaped by policy. Um, And so I write books um, and, and, you know, I freelance for the New York Times and Washington Post and many other great places, really talking about the ways that these issues intersect, often clash, for example, with the only industrial with the only industrialized nation that doesn't have a federal paid leave, right? Mm. It's like us and I think, you know, Papua New Guinea. Um, And so the fact that women don't have a a paid leave creates all sorts of barriers to motherhood. Obviously, it disproportionately harms those who don't have corporate jobs 
and, you know, may work in hourly wages or work at Starbucks or Walmart and those types of places where you, you know, people are going back to work 10 to 14 days after giving birth in this country. I think the study showed that 25% of U.S. women are going back to work wow. 10 to 14 days after childbirth. That's, that's despicable. And so these policy gaps lead to a very stressful motherhood experience and that stressful motherhood experience shows why we have some of the highest rates of postpartum depression mm. why you know we have so much anxiety you know i mean why we have such low breastfeeding rates you can't really mm. establish breastfeeding properly if you are going back to work in 10 days and you're yeah. stressed out about it. like it's a it's a ripple effect yeah. and it's not just the has... mother's health right it's the baby's That's health right. too right Absolutely. babies need their mom they need to be like held and touched and loved and so like Absolutely. when you give the baby away to a you know some kind of daycare day seven of birth is like oh it's crazy. And that's the option that many people have. I mean, yeah. obviously, many people try to rely on parents mm -hmm. and other, you know, caregivers, but I, that has all been disrupted, particularly during COVID. Yeah. And, you know, we see that these that the lack of policy is really harming, uh, you know, mothers, um, as we've seen during the pandemic. Now, mothers are primarily the educators, and it's more of this unpaid labor that we do that isn't valued by society. The things that we're talking about, that developmental mm. uh, um, bonus that comes from breastfeeding and, and that thing, and all these other things that mothers do. And so the unpaid labor of mothering is often not valued, yeah. although I would say to anyone, how much would you pay for a good mother? Oh, girl. Oh. How about all the copays I paid in therapy for the last 10 years? That's how much I pay. You know, so, you know, a good mother is priceless. Yes. We, we, can, we, we can never put a number on it. Yeah. But by society, valueless, right? Wow. We don't value wow. mothers to give them space to do what they what they need to do. Wow. You know, we are now recognizing that not having paid sick leave is a terrible policy. You know, um, not being able to work from home and be flexible yeah. is a terrible policy. And so I'm hopeful that, you know, some of these things um, that we've been forced to do within the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, will end up helping um, mothers and women going forward. Thankfully. But um, I'm, I'm saddened that so far the early signs are that it won't. Yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of work to do to better support mothering as, a, as an important job yes. in this country. Um, we talk to a lot of uh, medical device, you know, entrepreneurs on here, therapeutics, and we talk about the FDA and how do we get the FDA to approve our devices? Um, because, and, and that's not part of this episode necessarily. If you're interested in that listeners, there's lots of episodes about it, about bias within the FDA and how do we get them to approve our, our women needed things. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I've asked some people, how do we, influence the FDA? How do we influence insurance coverage? And the solution that's boiled up has been get more women in Congress because Congress votes on Medicare and Medicaid coverage. And when you have Medicare, Medicaid coverage covering women's health, the other players will follow suit. So I'm like, oh my God, we have a, a action plan. Okay. More women in Congress that are going to vote on the Medicare, Medicaid plan. So my question to you is you know when you say like there's all this this policy that needs to change around motherhood and valuing mothers what what's the action plan for us well i mean there are really so many when we think about the policy change you know paid leave is 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 a big one mm -hmm. you know um and i think that obviously uh within this administration people have lost hope but certainly on the state level we're seeing a lot more um, state policies coming together mm -hmm. to provide paid leave for, for mothers and to and for fathers, right? Paid family yes, leave. Yes. And so that is, it's not just for mothers, it's for fathers too. And so that how do we push on a state level and then make, make this a federal law? Because right now, you know, many of these laws leave so many families uncovered. And so I think that I'll continue to push. There are great organizations like Moms Rising who are working on these issues from a, from a legislative perspective to push um, and to advocate for paid leave on a federal level. So hopefully that's something we can continue to make noise about. Perfect. Well, I, we would love to know some of the names of these organizations. So we'll, we can tell our listeners, you know, if you're going to donate to the cause or put your time in here, here's some organizations doing great work. That would be awesome. Um, my next question for you is could, um, what is the history of the culture of breastfeeding in America? Cause I know breastfeeding is something that, that you've gone into. So what's the history there of breastfeeding in America? Well, I mean, if you think about it, it depends on who we're talking about, right? So mm, yeah. breastfeeding <laughs> for black women 
uh, the history is very different than the history for, for white women. And, you know, just for a little bit of historical context, during slavery, black women were stopped from breastfeeding their own children and often forced to breastfeed the children of their <gasps> um, white slave owners. And so what we had was a disrupted experience. I mean, and as yeah. you mentioned, breastfeeding is not just about the food. It is about the nurturance. It yes. is about that bonding. And none of us can imagine being forced to give that to someone else. And what the uh, what the historical records of slave narratives show that it was often to the detriment of that own slave that own slaves to that enslaved woman's children, right? And so you see these reports where the own um, the enslaved woman's children died because she was being forced to uh, to give that to someone else. And obviously, the slave owner would often prevent her from breastfeeding her own child because he wanted that milk for someone else. He could sell her, make her more valuable, um, and, and not be concerned about the infant. And so that distortion um, was really disrupted. And then even after slavery, because there were so few opportunities for black and brown women to uh, earn income, many of them were wet nurses as one of the few types of jobs, quote unquote, yes. that they could do. Yeah. And all of this was in service to white women, right? When white women decided that they didn't want to breastfeed because it was beneath them and they had money, they would pay a black or brown woman usually to do it for wow. them. And so there became this whole market around black uh. women as breeders and feeders um, and not for their own children. And so unfortunately, this historical trauma still kind of exists. It's been passed on generationally. Um, and so many times, particularly in families, and we have a very matriarchal culture where, where, where whatever granny says goes or what big mama says goes, particularly those older relatives may have a connotation with breastfeeding as something that, you know, we did for other people, not for ourselves, yeah. or something that reminds us of a time that we'd like to forget. Yeah. And so we're really trying to reverse that. I'm one of the co-founders of Black Breastfeeding Week, which happens every year from August 25th to 31st. Um, and we really work to create awareness about all the women who are breastfeeding. And so we're really trying to reclaim that tradition yeah. and recognize that you know, it was something that was taken from us mm -hmm. um, and, and, and that bond and that normal way, you know, a slave could not own her children. She could not protect her children. She could not even feed her children, which for a mother is their first job. I yeah. mean, none of us can imagine what that feels like. Um, and so we really have to consider these factors as history as we try to rewrite it, correct it, um, and, 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 you know, shift that narrative today. I feel like crying. Like it's, uh, that is unbelievable. Um, yeah. And when we think about breastfeeding in general, you know, we have to think about it as something that you, women uniquely do, right? When yeah. people who self-identify as whatever you have, if you have mammary glands, it's something that you can uniquely do. And mm -hmm. so when we think about the ways that our culture in general, bringing it more present has one, um, sexualize the breast, right? Yeah. As something that we use every day to sell chicken wings and beer, right? But when people see someone feeding their baby with it, they are quote unquote uncomfortable. Yeah. It makes no sense, yeah. right? So if they are pushed out in a bikini, fine. Mm -hmm. Feeding a baby, serving their actual biological purpose, yeah. I'm going to call the manager on you. I mean, seriously. And so this is the dysfunction in our society that also impacts breastfeeding the ways that our bodies have been taken over by marketing forces and, you know, and advertising yeah. versus them being used for our babies. Um, and so this is something that culturally we also have to fix because that impacts all women. All women. Yeah. That's something in femtech that we struggle with a lot is you can run an ad on Facebook for erectile dysfunction, but you can't run an ad for sexual wellness. Uh, and Crazy. that's the word we use for when we talk about women, you know, um, in, right. in Vogue. I mean, we've been having a terrible time with Earth, the same thing with uh, Facebook, because we mentioned racism and bias yeah. in care and, you know, constantly getting rejected. Yeah. Um, but of course, the actual racist statements are being <laughs> pro propagated all the time. It's like, okay, yeah. you know. Tell us about problem. the uh, Mocha Manual series. 
Yeah, so that was my first book series. I mentioned it like, you know, my first book came out and that was my first book was The Mocha Manual to a Fabulous Pregnancy. The second book is called The Mocha Manual to Turning Your Passion into Profit. And then for the third book, we did a Mocha Manual for Military Life. At that time, we were really trying to support military families. Um, so we did a book for military families and female service members. And so my idea when I started The Mocha Manuals was really to create a line of books for women of color, like serving all of their needs. And I started in pregnancy. It followed my journey because I was leaving my kind of role in journalism and kind of stepping into creating this brand. MochaManual.com became one of the early um, websites really looking at uh, pregnancy and parenting for African-American families, you know, again, back in 2006, when no one was really talking about this. I took a lot of heat or saying that uh -huh. things were different for us. Um, so, so yeah, so that, you know, those were some of the early beginnings of my brand building and of me trying to create a unique space that looked at the ways that all women are impacted, but also carving out a, a space to say, there are some things that are unique to women of color yeah. and they need to be addressed. Yeah. So that has always been a theme in my work, um, and, and which also obviously applies to the Earth app, um, creating out, carving out this special space for women of color, you yes. know, around their birthing and, and pediatric uh, care. Yeah. You know, the work that Femtech Focus is doing is we're just trying to shift uh, the medical field to understand that women are not just little men. Right. So like so often things have been made for for men and then they just assume like, well, maybe we'll make it smaller and then it's good for women. Right. And so we're trying to shift that. But then when you get into the shift, you're finally like, OK, this is for women and women are not just little men. Even within that, you got to tease it apart more and more and more and more. Right. There's different yes. needs. There's different desires. There's different mindsets, culture, history, trauma, all, all the things, um, all the things, all the things. And I think like, you know, anybody who's in product design and mm. is not thinking about that right now in 2020, I have to be looking at you like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And, and why, you know, I mean, yeah. really, um, yes. it would be, it's, it's incredibly tone deaf in this moment to, I mean, certainly before we got to the racial uprising with yeah. Me Too and the ways yeah. that women have been standing up. And, you know, I mean, it's it, it's, it's really inexcusable at this point. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, and if anyone's going down that path, it's clearly intentional, um, which speaks volumes. Yes. And so, you know, I think that we as consumers have to begin to hold folks accountable mm -hmm. the same way we're talking about with the Earth app. Like we have to hold designers yes. accountable and those creating products for us. You know, there's been a lot of pushback on the face recognition that didn't recognize black faces yes. or black skin yeah. or larger noses. And, and these are important things to consider. We have to say it. Yep. Um, so that they can get it right. I mean, it's unfortunate that it has to come out before they these things get noticed. Mm -hmm. But um I mean, let's, I was even such such a little example, but also so so meaningful. I needed to buy band aids the other day, and I was like, I really want like unicorn band aids because I was like, that's fun as a young adult. That's what I want in my life. And I realized there was all of these racks of different types of band aids, blah blah blah. And then there was like one that was like darker skin toned band aid, and I was like, oh my god, there's only one. That's even considering it not being like, you know, a Band-Aid being like fake skin, like blending in. But it was like, they're all for white people. Oh my God. And there's one box of Band-Aids in the bottom right corner for people of color. Right. Like crazy. Yeah. And that was called flesh tone, which was the same case for stockings and ballerinas yes. and, and yes. you know, so many things where the assumption was white skin. Yeah, And that was the assumption and that's how everything was made. And there was no consideration for darker tones. Yeah. And so, you know, I think some of the Band-Aid folks are doing better now. But to your point, it's like you, you find that one box. One box, um, yeah. And maybe you were just in a, and you know, maybe you were just in a neighborhood where they felt that one box served the percentage of people who might use it there. But, um, you know, I think there is, a you know, a recognition that it, we're, we're not just, you know, uh, brown white people we are actually unique in our own wow. ways culturally yeah. and things like that as well yeah wow Kimberly this has been such a powerful conversation I have laughed I felt like I was gonna cry like I feel angry this has been a very impactful 40 minutes um I want to ask you two last questions the first one is uh, what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating 
Well, I think that there are, you know, certainly, as you mentioned, the area, the space for Black women still needs a lot of innovation. I'm excited that Earth just launched, and so I encourage everyone to check it out. Go to birthwithoutbias.com, look for the Earth app, I-R-T-H, um, and download it and share with women of color. But I think that we need more of community-centered models. Like, the innovation we need is not devices you know, we, mm. I don't. I don't think it's any more wearable gadgets, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's things that help us connect more as community. Things that understand that people are having different experiences mm. within the same place, whether that's mm. the workplace, the the healthcare place, or you know, the gym. I mean, like like those things. I dig into the individual experience. I think those things need a lot more innovation. Um, and that we don't forget that, you know, we are all unique and that people are looking for community. Ultimately people are looking yes. to feel like they belong. Um, and so when, when you can really tap into that, I think that's where there's a real sweet spot for all mm. innovators out there. Yes. Incredible. And what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Uh, I think it needs more black women. Yes, um, it does. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. I mean, we yes. know the disparities in terms of funding, access to capital. I mean, that's all clear. We also know the numbers in terms of who's the CEOs of, of the companies. And so on both sides of the equation, both as black female founders who are able to access you know, capital at different levels in their funding journey, mm -hmm. um, but also as CEOs and as scientists mm -hmm. and as product designers and as app developers, you know, at Earth, we are, our, our app was built all by women of color. And that's something I'm incredibly proud about. And I set out to make that a mission. And so we have, um, we have an all fem team building it because that was really important that it was built by the people that it's intended for, yes. right? That's, 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 you know, basic, but not so basic. And so we can use that model, not just in the ideas, but who's creating them, who's building them, who's promoting them, who's at the table. I think that's where we need to dig a little bit deeper to be more innovative and creative. Kimberly, I could not agree more. Um, <laughs> I probably know about 400 femtech founders and I am it is what it is. Like I think about maybe five, maybe 10 are black women um, or black founders in general. Cause I think femtech can be started by men too, but that's another episode. Um, is it a, is it a me issue? Like not finding them or is it like a cultural issue of black women are, are working on other stuff rather than women's health or, or like, I don't know what the issue is. Do you have any idea? Well yeah, I mean, there are a number of us who are working on Black women's health. There's Poppy Seed Health, there's Kira, um, there's uh, the Renee. Um, there, there, there are about five of us who are kind of Black women founders in the Black women's health okay, space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we kind of have our own, you know, group and we stay connected. Mm. But I think that people are looking in all the usual spots. I actually had this mm. conversation with a female founder group, like, they look about who's got VC capital, but you're not looking at yes. people, particularly black women and brown women. And this is from my second book. They build their businesses differently. Yes. So they may be more, you know, relying on community loans or, yeah. or family. And, but so you're missing a whole bunch of vibrant entrepreneurs and, and great ideas because you've only decided that, you know, you're, you know, only people who are looking for VC funding are, are within your scope, right? And so how do we actually create new mechanisms for looking? Yeah, right? It's like that, that corporation that says, I can't find any black people. Well, where did you look? Yeah, <laughs> just your alumni group or yeah, just exactly. your LinkedIn or yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so where are the places? Like do the work to figure out where black female founders are. There are plenty of hashtags you can follow. Even okay. on Instagram, there are, you know, plenty of groups. Many organizations have dug, in, dug into this. You know, I've seen events by Google and Facebook that I've attended, that I've spoken at mm -hmm. to really um, amplify black female founders. So like, where are you looking? And so I just yeah. feel like, again, in 2020, it's just not an excuse to not know. Yep. People need to do their work um, and, you know, and Google it and also use social media to find out who else these people are talking about. And then to find those black organizations where black female founders are 
um, collaborating because, yeah. the, you know, there are some myths that are happening for black female founders. They're amazing. Like, get there and find out about it. Educate yourself. Sign up for some newsletters and, you know, do the work. You, yeah. you got to do the work. I I am encouraged that, you know, <laughs> like it's me. It's on me. I'm encouraged by that because I'm like, I can I can look further because it was, it's actually very relevant. It was just this week I was looking to invite some people to a summit and I was like looking, I want people of color, like no more white people are invited. Like who else can right, speak right. at this? And I was just looking at the numbers and looking and I was like, damn, like this is not acceptable, you know? And so it was just a realization this week. And so you've really lit the fire under my butt <laughs> that I need to look and not my usual places. So I, I'm right. encouraged yeah. by that. And I'm going to use you as a resource. You just added yourself. Okay. I'm going to ask you, okay. <laughs> where should I look? <laughs> um, wow. Kimberly, this has been so incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for the work you're doing. I think all femtech is important, but there are certain things that I'm just like, no, really, like this is really, really important and relevant. And so thank you for fighting the fight, you know, and, and standing yeah. up and, and making shifting paradigms and hopefully saving women's lives not before exactly. beforehand, right? That's right. That's right. We, we want to start saving lives and preventing deaths and that and fewer people, you know, have the trauma. Yeah. of many of these experiences, you know? So I'm grateful to you for making time to share your, <laughs> to, to interview me on your wonderful podcast and for me to get to speak to your listening audience about what we're doing at the Earth App and also what it means for Black women's health in general. So I'm excited and grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Kimberly Seals Ayers, the founder of Earth. Researchers at Stanford University have documented what women have been saying all this time. Implicit bias impacts the care and treatment we receive. In the most recent Listening to Mothers National Childbearing Survey, 21% of black mothers and 19% of Hispanic mothers hospitalized for childbirth reported perceptions of poor treatment due to race, ethnicity, cultural background, or language. Yet we continue to only rank maternal services as availability of private rooms, how good the food is, and whether you can have overnight visitors. We must hold healthcare systems accountable for their conscious and unconscious biases. These are things that we need to be reporting and quantifying and sharing. Women of color's lives depend on it. Please check out the Earth app by visiting birthwithoutbias.com. Again, femme fans, there is some heavy emotions, a heavy anxiety in the United States today, and I know that the rest of the world is watching too. Please take care of yourselves. We cannot lead the health and wellness mission if we ourselves are not healthy and well. This podcast stands for so much. If you see our mission of women's health equality as a vital mission, then please subscribe to the show. Write a review, share it with a friend. Femtech Focus is also a nonprofit organization and depends upon your donations to operate. Please consider donating at femtechfocus.org. While there, subscribe to our newsletter and join our virtual community. Until next time, keep innovating and taking care of yourselves because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. <laughs>